Well, congregation, this would be one of those portions of the Word of God which may make us uncomfortable. You see, here we have the the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of, of God himself, and he is referring to the gathered people of God, to that people who is set apart by covenant for his worship and his praise. And speaks, doesn't it, of those who have a knowledge of the truth, who have the word of God spoken to them. But within this group of people, you can see there are there is a very wide difference between the two categories described. On the one hand, you have one who is surely what we would call a genuine believer. He is described here as one who feareth the Lord and obeyeth the voice of his servant. And yet, paradoxically, it says that he walks in darkness where there is no light. On the other hand, you have described a great multitude that has a very different picture. They are described as those who are surrounded by by light. And yet, their end is, is not pictured as good whatsoever. Here we have one of those portions of the Bible that reminds us that when it really comes to facing the truth and the Word of God, it's not enough simply to hear about the things that God speaks concerning what it is to differentiate between lies errors, falsehood, and those doctrines and truths which are of God. There comes a point where each one of us must seek to discern whether our Christianity, whether our religion, whether our relationship with God is true or no. We must examine ourselves, examine in ourselves, congregation, We must search our hearts to see where it is that we find ourselves within the categories described. For this, I would like to write over the sermon, The Believer Walking in Darkness. We'll take that as our starting point and really the framing of these two verses. And for that, we'll consider three thoughts. First, we'll consider um, the, the contrast with those walking in light. Second, we'll just zero in on the description of the one who walks in darkness. And third, we'll look at the command given to the one who walks in darkness. Well, let's begin by looking at that second verse there and and the picture that is described because it's really one of the most arresting, I think, that we find in the whole Bible. Behold, all all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, 
Walk ye in the light of your fire and the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. Now, the the thing to understand about this group of people is that they are walking in light. And light is used in different senses in the scripture. And here, the, the picture is one of light as it is a reflection of the life of joy, a life of peace and contentment and hope for the future. You see, I think we all understand on, on some level what it is to walk in the light, or we, we have a bounce in our step, we have, have joy in our hearts. And where this is applied to spiritual things, when it's applied to those things that concern eternity, it's talking about those who feel they have a sense of divine favor, that God smiles upon them, and so all will be well for them. That's really the context of what is spoken of here, our our relationship to God. And there's this this great group of people. Behold all you that kindle a fire and compass yourselves about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire. It's a great number that's described here, a great multitude. And it's a fitting thing because the great number of people throughout history could be categorized in in this way. You see, there are people who would describe themselves as atheists who disavow all religion or spirituality, but I think even if even in this day in which we live, ultimately that's quite rare. Everyone, if you would, not everyone, but the great number of people, you would pry into what they really think about spiritual things, and if they would hazard an answer, they would probably say something like this, well, I, I don't worry about that. I'm, I'm, I'm confident I will go to a better place when I die. Or it's something like this. Well, I know that, that God is love and I know that I'm a, I'm a good person and so it will all end well for me. I know that things are good with me in that regard of spiritual things. And I would say that that is probably also the case with many who would name the name of of Christian. But when we look a little bit further, we see that the picture is is one that is rather disturbing. This light in which they walk, the, the life in which they live as it concerns spiritual things, it's pictured as something that they themselves kindle. This is you, if you're going camping, will stoop down, collect the ingredients for your fire, your light a match, and you will, will light a fire in order to um, press back the darkness and to, to give you some warmth. So also it is here. This great number of people who are walking in the light, it's, it's purely of their own making that's uh, pictured here. This is 
Light that comes from self. Light that comes from within. It is generated by man. And so, ultimately, the the implication here is that this does not come from God. It doesn't have its origin in the, the Word of God, the revelation of God. It's not born in the heart by the Spirit of God or the power of God. It is simply the result of human thinking, human feeling, and of human activity. And as you, you look at this picture, you come to see that, that where this light is coming from self, the end of that people who would so walk in a light that comes from within, a contentment and a joy that is simply self-generated, it ends in a terrible place of doom. First, it, it, it is pictured as a doom kind of in, in this way. God pronounces a judgment in this way. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks ye have kindled. Picture there is, is this people and they've surrounded themselves with this light that they have kindled. They've surrounded themselves with sparks and so God pronounces this to them. Continue on the path that you are going down. Continue with the religion that comes from within. There's a sort of giving over here, a, a sort of surrender to the path that we would choose on our own. But worse than that, you see how it concludes. This shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. Now the word for lie down there is, is often used of, of one's death. The idea is that everyone, they lie down upon what we would call a deathbed usually. They're, they come to a place in their life where they, they lie down never to rise again. And for these people, pictured in their death, in the very end of their life, it is one of sorrow. They are lying down in torment, literally, in the, in the Hebrew. And so the picture there is that though you can walk in light all your life, though you can feel happy and content because of what you have generated for yourself in, in happy thinking and, and good attitudes about spiritual things, yet God can pronounce over such a person, it will not end well for you. Your end shall be sorrow, and it is a judgment that you will receive from my hand. You know, I remember it's on one occasion I, I heard about a man who, who was doing evangelism, and he knocked on a door of someone who took great offense at what he was doing. Well, he said, well, well, you Christians, you just think that everyone's going to go to hell. And I find that to be so offensive. And one of the, the men who's evangelizing, he, he speaks up in this way. Sir, what 
you need to understand is I don't just believe that most people are going to go to hell. I think most people who call themselves Christians are going to go to hell. It's a dire statement. And if we would say that that is too hasty, if we would say that that is too grim and dire, ought we not to recognize that so much of what calls itself Christianity, what calls itself Christianity today, it seems calculated to generate exactly these sorts of people. It's horrible to think how many people they go to a Christian church where the, the law of God is never so much as read, let alone applied to the hearts of people. That law of God laid out in the Ten Commandments and, and summarized in the words of the Lord Jesus. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the law of God which is calculated to show us how deep our sins and miseries are. And yet so many churches today, they would not dare to really press the point that God has a law and he demands its fulfillment, the obedience of it. It's a negative message. It's a message that suppresses the light that we would generate out of ourselves. Fluffy, happy, airy thoughts that are always positive, never focusing on the true reality of sin. That it is an offense against God and a violation of his holy law. Or you'd consider this about much of Christianity today. Very little discriminating preaching. That's really what Isaiah is doing here, isn't he? He's, he's discriminating. He's showing that there are those who are living in this way. Their thoughts about spiritual things, they don't go further than the natural understanding. They don't really regard the seriousness of sin or the holiness of God, and so they drift to eternal destruction. And so much of Christianity to our day, Christianity in our day would not really face those realities. But really, I think it, it all boils down to this, a pervasive man-centeredness. Listen to the songs that are so often sung in many Christian churches. Listen to the messages that are so often preached pay attention to those things that are really dwelt upon and spoken about and how many of them in what is called Christianity today are ultimately about manipulating people's emotions in order to make them feel good. And there is a depreciation and an ignoring of the realities about who God is what he requires, and how it is that he saves. But if we would say that so much of Christianity today is about generating these kinds of people before we would even dare look down on anyone who is brought up in such a sorry spiritual state that they would never be confronted with these things, let us take great care to examine ourselves today 
I trust that at least sometimes you've heard from this pulpit the seriousness of sin in the law. I trust that you have had people explain to you that not everyone is saved, but only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I trust that you have had the word of God spoken to you, surely with its its strict focus upon the will and the glory of God. And so how is it with us today when we can can look at these things and this picture of a people walking in a light of their own making, ought we to take such great care that we would never fall into the trap of settling for a peace which is false and grasping hold of a hope which will not endure in the final hours of death but be revealed to be a mere lie and not something that will give any any true peace beyond the grave. I always say that there is this contrast here of a people walking in light. But the focus, it seems to me, and certainly in the, in the verse preceding, is not upon that group, but upon a smaller group. And this smaller group is pictured there as one that is walking in darkness. Verse 10. Who is among you? Now right away you can see that this is a group that is, that is smaller than the first. God is looking out at, at the number of people who call upon his name and he's saying... Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Here you have God laying out those marks of grace, those evidences and signs that someone's Christianity is more than just words. That their religion is more than just a self-generated fire. No, these are people who are the genuine article. They are truly the sons and the daughters of God. Look at what is said about these people. The marks of grace that are set forth. Who is among you that feareth the Lord? Now we know from The Proverbs, don't we? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This mark of grace, it's it's not uh, the kind of fear that we would think about as a sort of terror or in the sense that you might be frightened of a bear or a wild animal or, or something like that. No. But this is the fear of the Lord. It's a comprehensive awareness of the character and the presence of God. Someone who has the fear of the Lord, they live their life in such a way that they are aware that God's eye is upon them. They live in the sight of God. This God 
before whom the very angels of heaven cover their faces and cover their feet, as Isaiah says, and and fly with two wings and cry out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The sight of the majesty and the glory of God, it, it affects them. It causes them to see that however it is they would live, whatever it is they would do, they must answer before this God. And so that awe and wonder and reverence for God, it permeates into their hearts and it affects their lives. The other mark that is set forth here is that they obey the voice of his servant. Now this morning, we considered something about the servant of the Lord. Children, maybe you you remember that from this morning. And we learned that the servant of the Lord, especially in uh, parts of this prophecy like Isaiah 53, they speak about the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the servant of the Lord. And indeed, as you uh, look uh, throughout this chapter, there are There are things spoken that seem to especially find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Look earlier in chapter 50, what's said there in verses 5 and 6. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters." And my cheeks to them that's plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Now in the context of Isaiah's prophecy especially, if you compare that with the 53rd chapter, that seems to especially concern not just the servant of the Lord as it might apply to any one of the prophets or priests or kings, but it concerns the Messiah himself, as, as he's often called, the suffering servant, the one who, although he knew no sin, was made sin for us. He was treated as a sinner, and he suffered the, the torments of torture and affliction. And so this servant is the one who speaks to the people through the the prophet Isaiah. And his voice is heard. Jesus Christ speaks through the scriptures. He speaks through preaching. He pleads with sinners. He welcomes sinners. He invites sinners. Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Jesus said, my sheep know me. They hear my voice and they follow me. So there's always this mark of the true believer where Christ speaks to them in the gospel through the scriptures. They cannot ignore that voice. They cannot turn away their heart from it. No, Jesus says, believe upon me, sinner. Trust in me. Receive the forgiveness of sins through me. And so that sinner believes in that voice, believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you have these marks of grace, but they're accompanied, aren't they, with this darkness? 
Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Now, if we would contrast that with what was said earlier, you have a group of people who are always living a kind of on a kind of spiritual high. It's always well with them. You would talk to them and say, well, everything is, is good between me and God. Never had any cause to worry about that. And here you have, on the other hand, those who actually are believers, those who actually do trust in him. And yet at this point, what is described of them is that they are walking in darkness. Now, there have been, been those, I think, who have made too much of this verse, and they've said, well, well, really what we ought to gather from this is that the Christian is always kind of living a kind of sober, dour, serious life, that they uh, have a kind of constant state of darkness that uh, differentiates them. And, of course, if you would read just through this book of Isaiah, let alone the rest of the scripture, you'd say, that's not true at all, that indeed there's, there's wonderful seasons in the Christian's life where we joy in the God of our salvation, where God's presence and power and blessing is sealed to our souls such that we have joy unspeakable. That is the lot of, of the Christian in many, many times and seasons. But I think what is being said here is that there is such a thing as being a true believer and not having that experience. But rather, having the very essence of saving faith, trusting in the Lord, having the very fear of God, and yet not enjoying the presence and blessing of God. And I think that what we ought to see from, from there is that there is a distinction that must be made. We must differentiate between those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ and those who have the assurance of faith. We would say, there, you would talk to this Christian, you would say, where is your hope found? How is it that you think that you can escape the torments of hell, they would say that I, I can find my hope in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. But then you would press them and say, are you sure that you've believed? Do you know for certain that you are a believer? They would say, I, I cannot have that, that assurance yet. I don't have that persuasion in my soul that I have believed in Christ. I don't doubt that there is salvation with him. I don't doubt there is forgiveness with, of sins with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I don't know if I am such a person who is saved. And so right away we ought to see that there, there's a difference. We ought not to assume that, that everyone who has a persuasion that all is well with them, that they are genuinely well, that they are saved. We learned that from verse 11. But on the other hand, we ought not to, to be persuaded that just because someone lacks that persuasion in their souls, that the Lord Jesus has saved them, we ought not to conclude that that person is an unbeliever. Now, of course, Belief and faith in Christ 
of its own nature, it does grow into an assured hope. It does grow into joy unspeakable. But that is where it is not interfered with. What is it that is interfering with these people that are described here? Well, I think that um, one of the things we ought to consider if we would find ourselves in, in a place like this and ask ourselves, why is it that we don't feel a sense of the Lord's presence in our life? Why is it that I feel I am walking in darkness? We ought not to discount the fact that perhaps God has a controversy with us. Could it be that there is serious sin in your life? Could it be that there are things that must be addressed? Indeed, you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, but Jesus never promised that you would enjoy that salvation apart from the work of repentance in your life. If you would live in known sin, then you, believer, if you are indeed a believer in this state, you are likely to bring yourself to such a place of darkness, feeling as though the Lord has forsaken you. So we ought to examine that carefully. If we are today feeling as though God's presence is absent from us, what is the controversy he has with us? When we would lay up the commandments of God before us, where is it that we have departed from the way that is good? But I hasten to add that we ought not to conclude that everyone who feels such things in their hearts. Not everyone is in a state of controversy with God. Look at these people that are pictured there. They're described as those who fear the Lord, those that obey the voice of the servant of the Lord. And it doesn't appear that there's any unaddressed sin. Yes, we're all sinners. We all have shortcomings. But here are people who are sincere in their Christian walk, and yet they feel as though they are walking in darkness. I think the thing we ought to conclude, congregation, is that the ways of God are much higher than our ways. God can have his purposes for bringing even one of his children into such a place as this, where you don't feel the blessing and persuasion and assurance of your salvation for a season. God has a reason for bringing you to that place. Not that he despises you, not that he has forsaken you, but he has a purpose for it, known to himself. And so we ought not to treat those who come to us with these kinds of feelings and say, well, the reason is sin, or the reason is some kind of a problem with you. We ought to at least sometimes recognize that the Lord is sovereign in these things. You see, it's, uh, it's far different when it comes to the religion that comes from within. It's very easy to manipulate people's emotions, very easy even to manipulate ourselves and just say, well, you know, I'm just going to persuade myself I'm a Christian. I'm going to repeat this over and over. I'm almost going to hypnotize myself until I just put away any other thoughts to the contrary and deal with my deal with my darkness in that way. But when we're having a living and dynamic relationship with God, the reality is that 
Every Christian in some measure is going to have hills and valleys. They're going to know the peaks of, of joy and sometimes where we, it feels as though God is so close and his word is so clear and his promises are so available. There's going to be other times where it feels as though the only thing that we have is just the, the, the very fingernails of our faith clinging on for a dear life. And we don't, don't have that persuasion that really we can say, for sure, I am one who is saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So we ought to recognize that these are things revealed in the word of God. Indeed, we treasure that assurance. We strive for that assurance. But where it is lacking, we do not simply try to generate that feeling within ourselves. It must come from God. And so where is that to be found if it is to be a true and genuine assurance? Well, for that, we look to the command that is authoritatively given to those who walk in darkness. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? And then comes the command, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. So there there's a number of things that I think we ought to take from, from this congregation. And the first thing that that really strikes me about this is that God speaking through the prophet here, he does not seek to minimize the situation that these poor believers are in. They are in a state of affliction. They are in a, a place of darkness. They, they feel as though they are forsaken of the Lord. And when we're in that such a condition, it's not good just to say, well, don't even worry about it. Just, just put that out of mind. And, and sometimes it's not even, even good just to say, well, if you just believe right now, everything will be well. What's given here is not a minimizing of that situation at all. And yet, ultimately, it is pointing us to the only source of hope. And that is in the Lord himself. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. What's there is, is really the revelation of all God's attributes are found in his name, his power, his wisdom, his grace, his mercy. All that God is, his name is revealed. The name of Jehovah, the Lord. And that name is held forth as a strong tower for sinners to flee to for refuge. It brings us back even to Jesus' name, doesn't it? Jesus' name, children, means what? His name shall be called Jesus, the angel said. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah saves. And ultimately, that's what we must do. We must look to the promises of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's added there, isn't it? It says here in verse 10, 
Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Now the idea, idea of stay is you lean upon, you rest your weight upon one who is strong and able to support you. And you notice how it's put here. You stay upon his God. This God who is glorious and merciful and kind. This God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can say that he is my God by covenant. God comes so close in his promises. And he says that all that I am, it is yours. If you will receive me in faith. And you notice, he says all these wonderful things. His name, the staying upon him, the offering of himself as the God of covenant. And he does this to those who are wandering in darkness. What he's saying to them is that even in the midst of darkness, this is the foundation that can support you. This is the thing that you must cling to with all of your might. God, as he has condescended to offer and to reveal himself. And there's not, not always the case that in, when we are in such a state of, of darkness, that immediately the, the darkness will subside. But we know that where God speaks those words, they are sure and true. And so, believer, maybe you go in, into this week and you read a passage like this and you, and you read it again and you read it again and, and you come to say that even, even though I can say it's true, I don't have that persuasion in my heart yet that is true for me. Well, my, my dear friend, my dear troubled one, you take these words and you begin with this reality. They are true. They are true. They are God's word. They are not to be doubted. They come from one who cannot lie. They can support your way. And what you do is you believe with all that you can. You don't just try to generate that in yourself, but as the word comes to you, as you receive it as God's word, you believe more, you trust more, you grasp hold of it more, you lean upon it more. And you rely upon this truth that where those cling to Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel, they will not be permitted to remain in that darkness. In time, they will be brought out of it. And that leads me to this basic principle. That yes, we are to look outside ourselves. We are not to generate this hope in ourselves. It must come from God. And we are to look to God to give it. To give us that persuasion. And to bring us out of darkness. But it's not apart from the means that he gives. Why is it that the prophet chose to speak in this way? To, to preserve these words in in written form for the church throughout the ages. It's because the word of God is the means to grow faith, to, to secure faith, and to bring us to that place of assurance. Take the word of God, congregation. Use it as it is to be used. Pray over it. Seek that the Lord would take these things and make them real for you. 
Take these promises before the Lord and say, Lord, you have promised to be my God in covenant. You have promised to save the sins of all those who would obey the voice of your servant, Jesus Christ. You cannot lie. And as you use those means, he will expose more and more of your unworthiness, more and more of your weakness, more and more of your sin. But what you will come to see is that as you become smaller and smaller, God becomes bigger and bigger. And his gospel becomes more and more precious. Congregation, it may be true that these two pictures are not comprehensive. Indeed, I know they're not. I know they're not. There be many of those who wander in darkness. And it is, it is not the case that they are true believers. There be many that walk in light. And it is the case that they are not unbelievers. But these examples are set forth before us for a reason. And that is that we would use them, that we would examine ourselves, and we would seek to profit in that way. May the Lord be pleased to use these things and to help us to know ourselves clearly in his 